0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Goliver. What's up, man?
1: Not too much, Andrew, but I do have to ask you for some help right off the top. What? Uh, I just have a real, real simple question for you, but there's going to be some psychological layers to it. Of course. I need to know if I'm getting soft. I don't know if it's old age. (laughs) Uh, I don't know exactly what it is, but... You and I both just watched tonight, which is Thursday night, the Toronto Raptors take one of the biggest, fattest L's uh, in NBA history. And that was just on the heels of them taking one of the most demoralizing L's that I've seen in the last five years where they can't make a shot in the final five minutes of regulation. They lose in overtime, of course. LeBron kind of uh, you know, basically steals home court advantage and then Kendrick Perkins punks Drake uh, on his way out of the building.
0: Uh, <laughs> I forgot they, about the Drake thing. Yeah.
1: I mean, that should count as a third loss in this series, in my opinion, <laughs> but it was a rough 72 hours for the Raptors and their fan base. And of course their fan base was really riding high entering the series. Yeah. They've been talking trash to me in emails for years. I always give it back to them. I dubbed them the Toronto Termites. This is the moment, Andrew, when I'm supposed to be coming in here and doing this victory lap and making fun of them (laughs) and saying, you know, DeMar went 0 for 5 from 3 in game 2. What did you guys really think was going to happen? And yet, I can't really muster the heart to do it, Andrew. I don't know if it's sympathy. Uh, I have a suspicion, though, that there's nothing that we can say that will hurt them more than they already hurt.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I think if we're limiting this discussion to you specifically, I think that you're just following the Spurs way here. You know, you don't need to do a victory lap. You don't need to celebrate. You don't need to (laughs) punctuate this with anything. You just show up and do your job and you let the results speak for themselves. Okay. And I respect that about you.
1: I don't think that's what it is. That's giving me way too much credit. (laughs) It really is.
0: I felt gross saying it. So I'm glad. Uh, Look, we have a lot to get to. We will get we will begin with the Raptors, but we also have to talk Sixers and Celtics. We have to talk coaching hires. We have to talk Melo and Kawhi. It's been a busy week in the NBA. But yeah, let's let's dig in on on the Raptors meltdown here and also the concurrent LeBron like case for him he's making a case for himself as one of the best players of all time and also the concurrent like lebron explosion that we're watching here i just want to say i love everything about this series i don't feel very much sympathy for the raptors fans and for the i I guess the raptors players all those guys are pretty good dudes but uh this has just been a masterpiece like it's lebron at his absolute best and the raptors at their absolute most raptorish i mean like the game 1 layups that was like mythology uh and then game 2 was just lebron kind of i can't even he was he was in like goat mode for the entire second half
1: well, you remember early in the season, Andrew. LeBron was toying with your heart. Remember, he had that game against Washington where he went down the post and he hit like four or five turnarounds. And we came on the podcast immediately afterwards, and we're like, "There he is, getting his MJ on." You know, it's old man Bron game. Yeah. And he was doing that, but in the playoffs, but with a degree of difficulty on some of those shots. Uh, that was just absurd. And by the way, it wasn't because of anything the defense was doing I mean I remember coming into the series didn't they people in Toronto wasn't OG supposed to be the LeBron stopper <laughs> uh don't know what happened there but I mean he's obviously a good defender but he was not doing anything to alter LeBron shots he's putting them up these fadeaways at just crazy angles uh you know basically from any spot over both shoulders I mean it was truly unbelievable and just to you know really dig the knife in deeper Uh, Kevin Love revealed to the media after game two that LeBron had told everybody at shoot around on Thursday morning that he was going to do exactly that, that he was going to shoot one turnaround over his right shoulder, then come back down on the next play and shoot one over his left shoulder. So essentially he's out here calling a shot in the middle of playoff games. That is humiliating, humbling for Toronto. I mean, like I said, they came in with a lot of momentum. I want to nitpick one thing that happened for the Raptors, because what you're hinting at here is that, you know, there's not really going to be an answer for LeBron. And I think that is absolutely a part of it. But there is a mental side here for Toronto that's absolutely there. And I've defended Dwayne Casey very consistently throughout all of our trash talking about Toronto. But after game one, he was openly speculating about his team having the yips. I thought that was a terrible look. Andrew, the yips are family business. You know, Mm -hmm. like if, if you're You know, if you're in a situation where you're struggling, uh, you know, to speak in public, the last thing you want to do is have someone else like let's say you're at a wedding, right, and you're not getting your speech out and the next person takes the microphone and it's one of your family members. The last thing you want them to do in that situation is be like, wow, Andrew, nice toast. <laughs> you really choked there. Thanks a lot for even coming. Why'd you bother? That's not what you want to have happen. And for this team that's already so mentally fragile, to have their coach air their dirty laundry like that, I thought was not the best look. And when they come came back uh, in game two... I was just ready for the fold because LeBron was jogging through the first half, Andrew. He was just letting them do whatever they wanted, force-feeding Kevin Love, just biding his time. Uh, The writing was on the wall, and they're in real danger of being swept, don't you think?
0: Well, let's go back to the yips thing for a second because I think it's a good point. I think the way Toronto reacted to Game 1 was like a massive red flag. I mean, it just... The immediate panic from everyone, from I mean, I don't know if Casey was panicking there, but like even acknowledging the the possibility of the yips, like you said, is just sort of like not how you play that. But then there were also reports that players were cursing in the showers and and like (laughs) there was just it was just super dramatic, and it was it was amazing how we went from zero to sixty with the with the melodrama with these Raptors, but. In Casey's defense, they definitely did have the yips at the end of that game, and I I think... Andrew, that's fine. We know that. We all know
1: they've had the yips for five years, Andrew. It's all over their body language and their face every time they get into a big game. Your coach has got to be the one who lies to the media and says, you know what? We executed our game plan. If we make one of those layups in the the final 10 seconds of the game, you guys aren't even asking me these questions. He goes and gets your back in that situation. And look, you could tell it during the game too. He was so mad at Kyle Lowry for that silly timeout and a turnover late in that game. And granted... Andrew, I was mad at Kyle Lowry, too. It was a really dumb play, but that's your (laughs) coach. You've got to have your teams back in that situation because they're already going against LeBron. They already don't have the confidence. And I don't think this is something that's like a fireable offense. All I'm saying is when you're looking at these layers of like Toronto's failure here, uh, I think Casey flinched. You know, I think he's been beaten here by LeBron a couple of times. They focus so much mental energy on trying to get over this LeBron mountain. It's been their mantra All season long, they hit a huge rough patch in game one, and it just shattered them.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I don't blame them for focusing all the energy on LeBron, but maybe they were just a little bit too honest and and gave him a little bit too much credit. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's hard to watch some of this. Uh, Like (laughs) Lowry in particular is a guy who I've really enjoyed over the years. But like in the, at the end of that game one, and I, I want to focus a little bit more on game one because game two, LeBron goes off and has that kind of night. like You're going to lose that game. And you know coming into the series that there are going to be at least two or three of those games where LeBron's just going to be too good and you're just going to have to live with it. But game one was super, super winnable. And Lowry just, like, kind of shrinks in in those moments at the end of games. And it's, it's not totally his fault because he just doesn't really have the explosion to counter when, like, Cleveland switches LeBron onto him. Like, he's just not the athlete that can kind of handle that anymore. Uh, but it's still sort of jarring to see him just pass it hot potato style to someone like OG and who just, like, isn't a threat either. And, it, like, they're just aren't many people on the Raptors that are going to make Cleveland uncomfortable. And that is, I, I, I guess, has always been true, but it's become more glaring over the last two games.
1: Well, I want to give you credit, Andrew, because I came into this podcast worried I was going to be too soft, but you just out here making excuses for Kyle Lowry's got me all wrapped up again. (laughs) I'm sick of the excuses, Andrew. This guy carries himself like he's an all-NBA player. He goes after the referees every two plays, you know, expecting superstar treatment. He's never done anything in the postseason. He melted down at the end of game one, like you mentioned, and their second half offense fell apart. And that was the main thing that they were talking about uh, in the end of game two is basically how they got defeated mentally by LeBron shots and they didn't punch back that's on your point guard as well he had a fine first half uh, but he didn't really cross the finish line uh, at all and you know I'm just we've seen it so many times from him he's never lived up to it this was supposed to be his moment they saved all the minutes off of him this year they managed everything he was supposed to step up and he just didn't do it and this is on him and frankly when you're looking you know ahead and we're not there yet it's only halfway through this series you know Cleveland's got two more to go but when you're looking at post-mortems, like they tried to change the culture, they tried to do the reset, all the other stuff. It's time to change that point guard. <laughs> that's that's the way I look at it. And if I were them, I'd be trying whatever I could do to trade him in his contract this summer. But you wow. know what else is really sad? No, I mean, how many times do you want to see it like this, Andrew? The guy goes out and he carries himself on the podium like he's some you know superstar who's better than the media too. He's all, he's always covering his face and like kind of acting goofy. He's got this whole act to him like he's a top ten player. He's not.
0: Yeah, it's not even close. I mean, I don't know. I think the bigger problem for Toronto all playoffs long has been Serge Ibaka, and I mean he has been well,
1: you can't you can't trade him.
0: Andrew, he's been <laughs> you're like stuck with You're stuck with that one. For them, and I don't know what happened. I mean, he's his game has been declining for a couple years now, and there hasn't been that same athleticism there. And I think the idea of Serge Ibaka still sounds great. But I, I, if you talk to Raptors fans who watched him this season, like he hasn't been very useful. And now even less so. I don't know what you do. I mean, honest to God, I was thinking, do you trade DeRozan and and Lowry for like a Kawhi and make that offer? Uh, I don't know if the Spurs would do that. But it is sort of...
1: I think the Spurs would rather have Kawhi sit out next year than make that deal <laughs> on, after no, watching no, no. this series. We
0: don't no. have to overreact. Now we sound like Raptors fans, okay? Look, the Raptors are still a really, really good team. And I don't Ugh. think... No, I'm serious. I don't think that people should like flip out and try to blow everything up. If the right deal for Lowry is there, then maybe you, you look into that. But I... I This is not like an all-hands-on-deck situation where you just have to completely change course.
1: All right, I'm going to try to convince you by reading an email that came in from Matt, who presumably is a member of uh, the Toronto Termite Nation. (laughs) He writes, Trauma happens from years of abuse, the proverbial beatdown of an ego to the point that the slightest misstep makes them crumble. So, I mean... I'm not even going to read the other 500 words that he included, but it got deeper and even darker than that. I think that hangs over everything. Like if they go down in another sweep here to Cleveland, they already tried to play all the excuse cards of, oh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna keep the same players, but we're gonna update the system, right? Yeah. Well, the system was not there for them in game two when they needed it most. It wasn't there. DeRozan's improved three point shooting, supposed improved three-point shooting was not there for them when they needed it most. They still don't have anyone who can guard LeBron. They didn't meaningfully improve their chances in that matchup. How can you run this back? And again, I'm not going to put this all on Casey. I criticize Casey for what I think he's guilty of, which is not having his teams back in a critical moment, but the parts need to change here. And I think if you're them, it's easier to build around DeRozan as the face of the franchise. He's been a career guy there. Fans love him. Um, et cetera, et cetera, move Lowry and, and try something else at okay. that, at that hold point. Hold on, hold
0: on. Let's let me try and ground us in reality here. Who are you moving Lowry for? Okay. He's making Anybody. thirty million dollars a year. He's his skills are declining. He's not a top ten point guard anymore. Like you're not gonna get some some crazy return that allows you to sort of realign on the fly and stay in contention okay if you trade low they're not
1: in contention andrew they're getting wiped off the court and they're basically you know stone faced after these games because they've got no answers there's there's no contention so you're so what are
0: you arguing for though because i i don't so they should just
1: retooling shaking it up so that you have uh you know you have a different vibe heading into next season so it's not the same old story so that all this baggage doesn't keep hanging over you you know you just have to change that core they have to do it yeah they probably should have done it last year they tried their best to not do it and they're running right into that same brick wall. Uh, I think it's a case of fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times, fool me four times, right? Like, how many times can you keep doing it before these players uh, are defined by it? And they already are. And they know it. And they're so frustrated. And that's why I kind of honestly feel a little bad for them. Like, you know, how many times do we all have to see the same story before, uh, you know, they you know, something changes? And look, I was expecting them, given their depth, you know, given the talent that they do have to win this series if they play to their capabilities, right. but they haven't. They just have not done that. And so you know, what else are you supposed to do? Why sit inactive and, and just watch? it?
0: Well, they're in a tough spot because I think Freddie Van Vliet was a huge part of their depth this year, and he's not the same guy right now. And then every other piece of that bench, I think their value has been kind of overstated. I mean, you saw it at the end of game two. They were leaning pretty heavily on CJ Miles. And like CJ Miles, as a veteran of fantasy basketball who has picked CJ Miles up for two two weeks at a time, like a dozen times each season, he's always gonna leave you a little bit disappointed in the end. And I think that that is sort of happening with all of the Raptors bench players. Like these guys are all nice pieces, but are not gonna add up to enough to really like change the calculus in a playoff series and uh so I don't I I'm, it's not to excuse the no shows from DeRozan and Lowry in game 1 but they also like don't have a ton of help and I think if you're Masai Lowry still has more value to the Raptors than you're going to get back in a trade and it's worth trying to retool unless if your argument is is essentially that the fan base is so damaged psychologically that everyone would just be better off cutting ties and moving on and a seventh seed built around DeRozan is like a healthier choice for everyone's sanity in Toronto, like I can maybe buy that. But if, from a basketball standpoint, I think it would still probably make more sense to keep Lowry and try to tweak this.
1: Look, what I'm saying is they're sort of like the shipping company that has a giant oil spill in the middle of the ocean, right? And so you can't really just get all new boats. (laughs) Uh, You know, you you can't really, you know, fire your whole board of directors. The one thing you can definitely do is change your company's name and hope people forget and they don't realize that that was you who polluted (laughs) the ocean. (laughs) They just need to rebrand this thing, Andrew. They need to get Lowry out of there and just bring it back with a different look. To
0: be clear, though, in this analogy, they are the shipping company that has had, like, Several massive oil spills in the last couple of years. Oh,
1: Andrew, they've ruined the Gulf, they've ruined <laughs> yeah. the Pacific Ocean. Don't even get me started on the Bering oh, Strait. Man. I mean,
0: these guys have just got oil leaking every direction. So many whooping cranes have have met their demise because of these Toronto Raptors. Uh
1: well, here's one thing I'd say though. They clearly need a closer, a finisher, like Chris Middleton in their late game lineups. They don't have it and that's too bad. But I do think we're spending way too many t- too much time talking about these yeah. guys, the Raptors, okay? They're the patsies, the foil here. Can we please talk about LeBron let's, James and what he did in game two? Let's move to
0: the LeBron side of this, okay? Because we got a question here from Sean who says, would you consider LeBron as the consensus greatest player of all time if he beats the Golden State Warriors this year? That's a big if, but say he does, What's your take? And uh, it's funny that Sean asked that, because I posed the same question to our Sports Illustrated chat the other day, and Rohan, our millennial-ass co-worker, responded, what are you talking about? He already is the greatest player of all time. Ugh, <laughs> I was God, like, come on. Uh, I don't know if I'm going there. But look, first of all, if LeBron with this broken Cavs team beats the Warriors I am absolutely willing to call him the greatest player of all time and uh
1: Why do you do this grease pig thing with this conversation every year Andrew that's the one thing that you go cyclically you know it's almost like you have a it's like you have a spring season and a fall season your spring season is LeBron's going to be the goat and by the time the fall season rolls me. around it's it's mike he's untouchable no, i mean how do you this do this
0: this is baseless i i don't think i've ever said i think lebron is going to be the greatest player of all time but look if he you said it the same thing the last two playoff runs no if he beats these warriors i, I would be so shocked <laughs> that i think you have to you have to make that claim i look as far as tonight is concerned I have written about this before and I think I talked about it like you said after one of the LeBron Wizards games this year. It's it's hard to explain what's different with this version of LeBron, but I think for me I've just never seen him this comfortable with himself. Like he know you can tell. He knows he's the best player on the earth. He knows it's him and MJ and he's just out there doing whatever he wants and like he just he slows the game down and takes these iso shots where he's staring down the defense. And it's like the ultimate FU moment because it's not even good basketball, what he's doing half the time. But he's just going out of his way to demoralize people because he can. And there may have been better versions of LeBron, but I don't think he's ever been more fun to watch than he has been like the last two years. Basically, ever since he won that first Warriors title, um, and probably the only Warriors title he'll have won. But ever since he won that, he, there's just been a level of confidence and an absence of fear in him that has t- has elevated his game to like a, an even higher plane.
1: He was so good in game two, he was giving me delusional thoughts. Andrew, I was sitting there during the third quarter wondering huh did Kyrie hold LeBron back is that what the problem was like I was like I was like and we've analyzed that Kyrie thing from every angle did we ever say that previously And I was honestly thinking like huh he's averaging 40 plus because he never has to give the ball up like this is unbelievable uh no in all seriousness though there was a very telling uh post-game comment from LeBron where he was asked uh by so Sohi uh Basically, uh, what kind of evolution or improvement has he made since the 2011 finals when Dwayne Casey, who was then an assistant coach for the Mavericks, basically like dared him to shoot jumpers and uh, he wasn't really able to respond. And LeBron just came out and said, look, at that point of my career, I wasn't a complete player. I wasn't actually that good. And now I am. And and now he's capable of doing some of the things that you're talking about, where he's thinking in the game on a different level. He understands yeah. exactly where he can go. He's comfortable calling his shots hours before he does it when he's talking to his teammates, you know, during shoot around. But it reminded me of an interview I did with Casey, uh, not this, this season, but last season. And Casey told me, quote, you can't surprise LeBron anymore. His intellect has caught up with his athletic ability. He coaches his teammates. He calls out our plays He's so ahead of the game, it's not even funny. So now you're getting both sides of this evolution, right? You're Mm -hmm. hearing LeBron say what he's capable of doing, and you're hearing one of his, you know, basically victims saying like, yeah, like (laughs) this guy is so much better than he was when we were actually able to beat him that I'm not sure what you're supposed to you know, ask us to do. It's crazy. And uh, his mastery wasn't just those crazy fadeaways, though his assists, oh, his totally. timing, his just uh, ability to just orchestrate everything like a, a puppet master and even the mental uh just the idea of hey, let's get Kevin Love going and, and what could that mean for our team. Uh, it was so obviously a LeBron like force fed idea there early uh, and it paid off with huge dividends.
0: Yeah, and and the fadeaways, it's more just for the spectacle. It's almost like the icing on the cake for LeBron where like we know that he is great at getting everyone involved and sort of playing the right way. And he's been kind of a departure from like the Kobe MJ school of basketball, but then to watch him add the hero ball elements in this like final chapter of his career is just wild. And uh, like, I think the, the question about his evolution is, is interesting because he clearly has gotten so much better in like, basically every facet of his game his defense has slipped a little bit but like I think psychologically for most of his career if there was if there was anything to criticize about LeBron I I guess the one thing you could say is that he was overly self-conscious and maybe a little too self-aware and you could sometimes see him processing like the gravity of the moment and you'd see him tighten up, start chewing his nails and like even that version of LeBron was still the best player alive, but it was just kind of strange to watch. And now all of that's over and we get to watch him just torture teams and uh I don't know, it's pretty great. Like that that, that was my my official analysis of the second half I was like holy shit, this is fun.
1: No doubt, two quick things. First, uh shameless plug alert. Lee Jenkins had a great uh you know bit of insight on the bonus podcast that we did uh you know this week about his rockets cover story talking about lebron and what you're saying about maybe his second guessing in certain moments earlier in his career lee said that if he would miss uh you know basically game winning shots uh he would be sort of haunted uh by the the vision of his teammates disappointed uh looks in the locker room Mm -hmm. and that would kind of go through his head and that would stick with him after the fact and he had to sort of coach himself out of those little mental hurdles i mean that is such a vivid image like can't you imagine him just like sitting in a a locker room and just thinking like oh my god like ray allen and and, and uh <laughs> mike miller and all these guys are just judging me and it's lebron you know but you know he is human well and uh, i the think second thing is- i
0: think that's pretty cool too because a lot of times the mental side of the game gets kind of shrugged off and, and it it's almost like mocked when people bring it up on the internet as if like, oh, like you can't quantify that. It doesn't exist, blah, blah, blah. But I think there is a real mental evolution that a lot of these stars, particularly like the Hall of Fame level guys go through. And you saw it with someone like Dirk and I think it's definitely happened with LeBron and it's cool to see him on the other side here.
1: No question. And then last thing I want to ask you what's a bigger example of getting punked? Okay. Being Drake, having Kendrick Perkins come into your building and, you know, basically cuss you out, put you in your place, and then walk out with a W. Or being DeMar DeRozan and being the master of the mid range, quote unquote, and having LeBron come into your building and hit every possible <laughs> turnaround. <laughs> fadeaway shot from the mid-range beating you at your own game oh, what's what's the biggest? what's the bigger example you
0: know my favorite analysis of the drake kendrick perkins thing i think it was Adi joseph uh who had a tweet the night of and said i think there's a legitimate chance that kendrick perkins has not listened to contemporary rap in the last like 10 years and has no idea who drake is and and the most recent rapper he heard was bun b And I mean, I wouldn't put it it it. past him. And look, if nothing else, we should make it very clear. This is a pro-Kedrick Perkins podcast, and we are Team Perk in the beef with Drake.
1: I'll tell you, Perkins in his whip, he's listening to Rick Ross. He's listening to Juvie. He's listening to Lil, Lil Wayne. Trick Daddy. Like... He's got a lot of the hot boys. I'm not sure he's got Drake's love ballads. You know, the duets with Rihanna and all that. I'm not sure Kendrick Perkins is bumping up. Can that. I
0: ask you one more thing before we move to uh, Celtic Sixers? So, Kevin Love, the, speaking of the mental side of the game, like I, as far as I can tell, he's not injured. I know he had that thing with his hand, and, and maybe that's still affecting it. But watching him struggle the past 10 days was pretty wild. And then the Cavs went out of their way to get him involved. And early on in the first half I was kind of wary of it. And it felt like like the emphasis on getting Love involved was sort of taking Cleveland out of its rhythm offensively. And I, I think if you're the Raptors, like you feel a lot more comfortable dealing with Kevin Love post-ups than the offense that, that Cleveland had been working with in game one and uh, and had sort of rediscovered in game one. So what did you think of, of where it went from there? Because it did kind of feel like Kevin Love came back to life and the strategy kind of worked.
1: Yeah, he had a couple of shots late in game one that I think maybe they were looking at that as like something to build on because he had been really MIA for a lot of that Pacers series. Yeah. I think in general the force feeding stuff that you're mentioning early in game two, it didn't totally bother me because I think the overall flow of Cleveland's offense is a lot better than it was in the first round series, and that could be just because that's you know that first round series was unusually ugly and slow and low scoring and all of that, and all season long the Cleveland Toronto games were like super high scoring shootouts, and you know everybody was getting in on the action and just lots of open threes and. Uh, so I didn't think that they pulled themselves out of it too much in the first half of game two. And once they found it working, it was like, look, if we can recapture this, we got to do it because LeBron does still need help here. You know, like everything that we're saying about him, it's like, you're not going to win a title with one guy. I mean, that, that has not been, they didn't work in 2015 when Cleveland was sort of forced to do that. And, you know, 30s back for golden state and he looked phenomenal in in his uh first performance like his playoff debut this season so you're going to need uh more than just one option i mean golden state is going to be able to defend lebron a lot better than toronto is right now so um it seemed a completely reasonable thing to do and they were in the game you know if they had gotten behind by say 12 points or something like that i think they would have chilled out on that but LeBron was just biding his time. You could tell. When he went into halftime, uh, it was like, okay. <laughs> you know, if it's within 10 at halftime, they're winning
0: this Yeah, team. yeah. That was definitely a red flag. The Raptors' inability to put some distance between themselves and the Cavs uh, with LeBron kind of just chilling. Okay, let's move on to Celtics. Uh, we got a great email here from Waz who says... It's time to step up, Gulliver. The Open Floor Globe has lost sight of you the past few weeks as your high horse has lofted far into the clouds. You are a (laughs) well-documented disciple of the Church of the Spurs and your praise for organizations with sound leadership from ownership to players to fan bases is at an all-time high. Your allegiances have expanded to the Jazz and their remarkable turnaround this year. That's fine. (laughs) Furthermore, though... After Westbrook's game five, you couldn't summon eight seconds of enjoyment in Westbrook's performance, even as a lifelong basketball fan. Your response to Sharp's lead-in on Westbrook was, "Oh, you know, he's basically had two good quarters in this series." Which I (laughs) forgot, but having it spelled out like that really does your your high horse has never been higher. You ended that. I I did say
1: that, and I did not regret it.
0: (laughs) You ended that segment with asking Sharp if this suddenly makes OKC serious contenders. Meanwhile, you go on and on about the contending Milwaukee Bucks. A.K.A. the most shit team in the playoffs. Uh, newsflash, Ben: the Celtics are the most complete organization in the NBA. They have history. They have a great fan base. GM, coach, team, system, etc. They are a better version of the Utah Jazz, and they are building the modern version mm. of the Spurs. They beat the Bucks by executing every move and every play at the margins, and this team deserves your respect open floor understands and appreciates sharp's celtics hate due to his wizards fandom ben your celtics hate has zero logic to it and contradicts the purposeful principles of ben goliver purposeful principles of ben goliver makes me kind of sick to my stomach but i'll let you respond
1: i mean I've been waiting for this email for months because every word he said is true. I mean, I am not going to dispute any of it. I just didn't think it was going to come from Waz. Waz has been pretending to be a very proud citizen of Minnesota and he's going to come on here and lecture me for seven paragraphs about the amazing, you know, virtue of the Boston Celtics. Uh, I mean, it was just, it really felt like a betrayal, just blindsided me. I'm almost speechless. Um, Boston has been very impressive in their first two games against Philadelphia. And I would tell you more about that if I didn't do a podcast with a guy who just shamelessly compliments the Celtics at every single turn <laughs> within this podcasting universe where everyone shamelessly uh, celebrates the, pod, uh, the Celtics at every single turn. Someone has got to provide the alternate uh, opinion here. And Look, I think that they are punching above their weight right now. They got two great performances at home, no question about it, and they really uh, exposed some pretty fundamental issues for Philadelphia that I'm sure we can get to in a second. Yeah. Uh, but they have they have been two different teams, uh, you know, at home and on the road so far during this playoffs. I mean, certainly they were in that series against Milwaukee, which you know, he loved to denigrate. But hey, he they, that team, if you want to call it a team, it's two guys took Boston to <laughs> seven games. So let's not go overboard, but uh i just think the series isn't over. Yes, yes, they're up 2-0, but i think Philadelphia is still in position where they can make this interesting. But it starts with their two best players. i thought Embiid despite his big numbers in game 1 uh really was not great in that game and i thought in game 2, you know, same situation plus, you know, Simmons uh really, you know, probably had the worst game that he's played in what, you know, 4 or 5 months. Yeah.
0: I mean, there are, there are a lot of threads here. I think First of all, I I do kind of I have a love hate re- relationship with the Celtics because I I am willing to praise them at every turn, but that I secretly hate them for existing and being smarter and better than the Wizards in every conceivable way. Uh, but as far as this particular series is concerned, as much as I respect everything the Celtics do and represent, I'm baffled. I mean, like think about it. it We can't understate how insane this is. The fact that you're sitting there saying, you know, the Sixers still have a chance to make this interesting. What the hell? How the fuck did we get here? I mean, I I think both you and I assumed that this was going to be a five-game series. I thought maybe the Celtics had a chance to steal game one. Uh, I think there are a couple things that I was wrong on and didn't think through enough uh basically because I just didn't think this was this was even worth like careful analysis but first of all I underrated the importance of home court I mean winning in Boston is much much tougher than winning in Miami and I think I overrated the Heat team a little bit and gave the Sixers more credit than they probably deserved for some of those wins. I thought I, like, in my mind, that was a major test that the Sixers passed with flying colors. And maybe the Heat just were not going to be that. They were always going to be tough to beat, but they were not actually ever going to beat anybody, uh, which is probably true, uh, regardless of who they who they were dealing with. Um, but then mainly, I forgot to be skeptical of, Bellinelli and Ilya Sova because those two are still like kind of shaky role players who are very important to Philly's success and then you hit on it I think the story of the first two games has been the Horford and Bede matchup which coming in here I think you and I you may have even said it explicitly on the last podcast like Embiid was supposed to come into this series and eat in this in this matchup and just dominate Horford and dominate Aaron Baines and any other like sad sack that the Celtics were gonna throw at him. But there are some real advantages for Horford in the matchup with Embiid, and a lot, particularly just the foot speed of Horford has ma- has made Embiid look kind of white ish which like I know is blasphemy, but it just. And Bead has been kind of lost in space in 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 both of these games so far. And credit to Brad Stevens, he has been really, really smart and ruthless about exploiting that advantage.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we've talked about like what makes a good coach, and we it's easy to harp on like put your players in position to look their best, right? Like give them every opportunity to succeed. But a good coach also flips that around and says whoever the other team's best players are put them in situations uh, where they're going to struggle. And that's exactly what LeBron James, by the way, was talking about with Dwayne Casey and the Mavericks. Like, you know, put him into situations. I think he said that explicitly uh, after game two, you know, recalling the 2011 finals where they just forced him to do stuff that he wasn't able to do and he struggled. That's exactly what Boston's doing uh, with Embiid. And he's not answering the bell. And it's funny because I remember after his huge game in LA against the Lakers, where part of his post game ritual was they broke out these like measuring instruments to like check his body fat and to check his like different, you know, almost like he's a sports illustrated swimsuit model, you know, like <laughs> going in uh, doing all these different things to kind of just track exactly where his uh his body you weight know, is at and so forth. That would actually be Doesn't it look that like, would
0: be a really good story one day because I'm sure the amount of science that goes into trying to keep Joel Embiid healthy would be shocking. And I would love to read like a long form piece on the Sixers team doctors and all the crazy hoops they jumped through to keep Embiid on the court.
1: No question. They had like a briefcase full of these instruments, right? But my point, my point was, didn't it look like he still needed to lose 20 pounds? Yeah. He was not moving very well out there and I don't, he's going to have to cover that distance. Now, Boston's shooting will probably come back to earth on the road. I mean, that was sort of what happened uh, in Milwaukee. And their offense looks a lot different when they're not hitting, you know, lots and lots of threes from all the different spots. And that's going to make this court a little bit easier for him to cover. But he has to flip it around and just parade to the free throw line, continue to play in the deep paint, continue to punish uh, Aaron Baines one-on-one and force the help and get that ball skipping around. And, you know, for stretches of game one, like in the third quarter, he was doing that. But for a lot of game one, he wasn't. And the thing that really bugs me is when he either gets tired or he gets frustrated and he takes the bailout three pointers, he's not good enough three-point shooter to, to be taking those shots, whether it's late in games or otherwise. And I think he feels the pressure as being the best player on the court to do that. And I think that's just bailing the defense out. I mean, if you're Stevens and you know, you're in a pressure-packed moment, you're, you know, nursing a lead, you know, trying to get to the finish line, and Embiid's pulling up off the dribble for a three-pointer from, you know, two feet behind the line aren't you thrilled with that? I mean, of all the things that he could potentially do to you, isn't that, you know, one of the best case scenarios for you as a defense? So they're trusting the math with uh, Embiid and I think it's working out pretty well for them. Uh, hopefully Philadelphia will have some counters here. And I do think that unlocking on Embiid, you know, falls on Simmons's shoulder here a little bit too. Those guys have played well off of each other, yeah. uh, you know, th- throughout this closing stretch, uh, you know, prior to Embiid's injury And Simmons just has to be better. I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, that was a complete dud. It happens, especially it happens to rookies. But I don't think that, you know, Sixers observers can have it both ways. They can't praise uh, Simmons for being, you know, older than his years and playing so well against Miami and then make the excuse for him that he's a rookie, you know, a week later. It doesn't work that way. You know, he's shown that he can do it here in the postseason. And when he doesn't do it, he deserves to take the arrows for it. Well,
0: this is... One of the things that's so interesting about this series is watching Simmons against Miami. I assumed Miami was as good a defense as he was going to have to deal with in the playoffs. And they, I mean, they were physical with him, they had guys who were disciplined, they had various athletes that throw at him. And Simmons was still the best player on the court in almost every game in that series, Uh, even better than Embiid. I mean, Simmons was amazing and looked like a future Hall of Famer for most of that series. And now, flip it forward, like five or six days, um, or I guess it's been like two weeks since that Heat series, since the Sixers ended it in five, but like the Celtics are guarding him They're more disciplined. They are cutting off his lanes to the basket. And uh, I I think it it certainly helps Boston that they had like a seven-game warm-up with Giannis. So like everybody is already on the same page here. But they have been awesome in in forcing him into sort of uncomfortable spots and exploiting his weaknesses – more than really anyone we've seen all year and i think this is where this is the first time all year where it's like oh man like there are some real holes in simmons's game that are going to start to matter as the sixers play at the highest levels of the nba like he's definitely good enough to get them there but they're it's going to be complicated against teams like the celtics or the warriors i mean the smarter teams are going to find ways to scheme and and put him in uncomfortable spots.
1: Yeah, for sure. The one thing I'd say, I expected Boston to defend Philly better than Miami did, um just because their their defensive numbers after the Kyrie injury were excellent. Yeah. And they're committed. They play together. You know, they've got enough of a rotation still, despite all the injuries, where that really wasn't the question for me. I I thought they were going to be able to play effective defense. I didn't think it would be this effective, though. I mean, they have done a very, very, very nice job against Philadelphia. And I think they've just kind of, uh, you know, stunned Philly uh, to a certain degree and, you know, caught them off guard. And I thought Philly actually regrouped pretty well for game two. I mean, they obviously got out to the big lead, but um, they wilted, you know, and again, that goes and falls onto, uh, you know, your star players' shoulders. Okay. Now that being said, I'm actually on team Brett Brown. I know there was a little debate, like, should you take Simmons out or leave him out because McConnell was playing well and, uh, the team was performing better with McConnell on the court. Uh, I think for the bigger picture situation here for Simmons's development and also just for the rest of the games within this series, I don't think Brett Brown had a choice but to play Ben Simmons. I think people who are suggesting, oh, you, you ride the hot hand and you just leave your, you know, one of your franchise players on the bench for crunch time of a playoff game. I think even though he's a rookie, I think that's naive to sort of NBA politics. And you have to throw him out there. And if he fails, you have to live with it. And I, I would not crush Brett Brown. I know there are some people second guessing that. Uh, I'm not one of them. Yeah,
0: I agree with you there. I think you, you're not only playing for this year, you're playing for like the next 10 years of Ben Simmons. Uh, I think two things before we move on, Terry Rozier continues to be incredible and continues to blow my mind. I am not ready to admit that he is actually good, but I'm loving, I think, my disbelief has made it, this whole experience so much more fun. I, I saw a picture of Drew Bledsoe wearing a Scary Terry shirt in, out in California. And the whole thing is just completely ridiculous. Uh, but he's been a legitimate factor in this series. And then the other thing... You, 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 j-
1: well, hold on What real quick on Terry. If I'm Ryan McDonough, how many times do you think that he's texted Danny and said, hey, Danny, you owe me for the Isaiah trade, okay? Like, you got me. Like, I used to work for you. Can we please just work out a trade here for Terry Rozier? He's about 12 times better than any of the point guards I've had on my roster for the last five years. That's a great point. We're ready to max him out and make him the franchise guy next to Booker. You bring in Doncic, and all of a sudden, you've got a squad, right? Yeah. Uh I don't know. If I was Phoenix, like, Watch out for that overpay. Right? Well,
0: it, that's funny because I was thinking about where he might fit, and there's been a lot of talk about him him being like a above average point guard, basically. And I don't really think he he could be that for most teams. But the bar is low in Phoenix. You're right, and maybe that's a, a solid landing spot, or maybe send him send him to Orlando. Although I don't want to do that to Terry Rozier. I'm loving the the synergy he has with the the Celtics crowd right now. I don't know. Let's see let's see see where this ride goes. The other thing though, Jason Tatum legitimately fucking awesome and I have will never there's I've never been wronger about a player than I was with Jason Tatum. I really thought he was going to come in and be Harrison Barnes and he is already so much better than that. He's been the best rookie in this series and uh I don't know.
1: That's great. Do you want to tell us how good the food tastes in Boston, <laughs> how beautiful the river is? And I mean, look how much longer do we, I have to listen to We can't
0: talk for 15 minutes about the about the Sixers and then not mention how great the Celtics have been. The other thing that I that jumps out at me with this series is this kind of feels like the warm-up act in this rivalry because The Celtics are going to come back reloaded next year. And there's a decent possibility the Sixers come back with superstars in place of like Bellinelli and uh, Robert Covington. And they come back reloaded. And if that happens, like the next four or five years in the East are going to be pretty, pretty great.
1: Yeah, let's close and we'll throw a bow into our, our Celtics listeners here. How painful on a scale of 1 to 10 would this series loss be for Philadelphia given the hype that built it up, you know, before the series, <laughs> given the regional rivalry, you know, given the amount, you know, the stakes of us all, you know, our assumption before the series was, you know, Philly's ready to do this, you know, Boston's limping in. Uh, you know, it won't even be fair, if, you know, if Philly wins, we shouldn't even count it because Boston doesn't have its real team. How painful on a 1 to 10 scale with 10 being, you know, Raptors level pain? would this series last be for Sixers fans?
0: It would be absolutely brutal, man. And I think that's part of what I'm enjoying so far is just how insane this is going to drive like Process Nation. And I want Philly to win the series for the sake of the playoffs, but if we are being 100% real, Sixers fans had become just as bad as Celtics fans on the internet. All it took was like three weeks of that team being legitimately good. And the process people became just completely unbearable. So it's been fun to watch them sober up a little bit. Although I do hope that the Sixers go back to Philly and whoop Boston's ass and end up moving on to the conference finals. Because I think that's by far the more interesting outcome.
1: You think they're a tougher matchup for LeBron still? For
0: sure. Definitely. Definitely.
1: Okay, cool. Just want to make sure you're on record here. Uh, I'm not giving up the faith in the Sixers, although it is really shaky. And Embiid, I didn't think he was going to be able to disappoint me. Uh, but the first two games have me you know, a little disappointed. So I'm hoping that he turns it around and retakes control of this series in Philadelphia. I can
0: confirm. One of my favorite things that you do, I I have never reacted to a basketball game. By stepping back and saying, "Man, I am just disappointed in this, in player X," <laughs> but you texted me at the end of game one of Sixers Celtics, and you were so genuinely disappointed. You used that word and uh, and many others to describe Joel Embiid's effort. So hopefully he'll he'll swing back into Philly and and bounce back a little bit. But look, speaking of effort and the opposite of disappointment for you. Let's go to the tabernacle, Ben. Darcy asks, is Dante Exum a James Harden stopper? Is Dante Exum the James Harden stopper? Please, 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 please say yes. James Harden can't handle Dante Exum. And then uh, Sean says, I have a suggested Joel Ingalls nickname for you guys. Mountain Range Joe. Make it happen. I don't really oh, wow. I don't really get that, but I will say American Psycho Brad Stevens is by far the best nickname you've come up with these playoffs. I challenge you to top it, but American Psycho Brad C- Brad Stevens is perfect for Quinn Snyder.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on in that series. The first thing I want to hone in on though it's Harden and Chris Paul making a crucial podium mistake, Andrew. They're going back to the Dwayne Wade, LeBron James 2011 sort of like fake coughing bit where they think they're the two funniest and the two smartest people in the entire world and everyone else is kind of dumb. The way these guys are blowing off questions, giving no comments, just kind of carrying themselves with this, uh, you know, holier than thou approach, it leads to. Losing home court advantage in game two because you took your eye off the ball and Utah just smacked you on both sides, offensively and defensively. They need to refocus. And I hope that game two loss actually was a wake up call for Houston because they've been playing pretty well throughout the postseason. Not A plus basketball, but they've been winning, you know, comfortably uh, most of the time. Obviously, they did in game one. Uh, I thought that, you know, pride came before the fall a little bit uh, based on just (laughs) their body language and how they were handling things in game two. And you can't do that against Utah. That's the one thing that you can't do because they will make you pay for your mistakes or for your moments of, uh, you know, your mind wandering or, or whatever else you want to call it. And that was just such an impressive, uh, performance by Utah both ways. I mean, offensively go ahead and gush about Ingles and his shooting, yep. uh, you know, defensively, I mean, Gobert made a lot of really smart and their team defense too adjustments to taking away stuff around the basket from Harden to make things more difficult for him. Uh, they did a nice job of you know, really protecting the stripe. They kind of borrowed some of the Spurs stuff, and I remember saying that maybe a month ago about how Utah could sort of you know, give Houston some issues because they could scheme their defense a little bit like San Antonio did during last year's playoffs where you really protect the line carefully while also trying to just basically plant somebody in front of that rim to take away the, the easy stuff. Uh, it kind of bamboozled them and you saw Chris Paul settling for more mid-range jumpers than you would normally see as a way to try to unlock it Uh, he wasn't really hitting uh, you know those at at the rate you need Uh, and you know that's why the series is even and I can't wait to see the crowd in game three I'm sure you saw the fan (laughs) who was like heckling Harden with the cell phone you know going back
0: so can I ask you something does Harden get in trouble there because I feel like he probably should right
1: well, I mean, I—if we go by the usual NBA standard—I think he draws a foul on that play. <laughs> <laughs> he he smacks the guy's cell phone out of you his hand, and he goes to the free throw line. You are full
0: Jazz super fan for the next two weeks. I love it. Um, no, no
1: I, I'm just joking, but I don't think he does because of the personal space issue. I mean, the fan was like definitely kind of, uh, you know, being a little aggressive. I think they need to step up the security here, though, because we've seen enough incidents where. This this on and off the court stuff just shouldn't happen. I mean, the NBA has got to be better than that. And they can't just leave it up to, you know, whether these guys are paying attention or not. I mean, they need to have some real protocol in place to kind of prevent these superstar on fan interactions, because guys are out there doing it for the retweets. You know, these fans are trying to go viral, trying to get their gram to blow up (laughs) trying to get the likes. So old. Uh, well are they doing that or are they not doing it isn't that what's happening they're just out there trolling out right? there
0: doing it for the retweets look I think they're I mean that's an easy take and no one's going to argue with you that the NBA should have all the security in place necessary to keep players safe I think everybody well if
1: it was so easy why didn't well, you everybody say,
0: agrees with that my only point is that watching that Harden video that Jazz kid looked like he was 16 years old and didn't really seem to be like invading Harden's personal space, and he kind of went out of his way to mess with that kid. I thought it was a little bit over the line, uh, but whatever, it doesn't really matter. I'm happy for the Jazz that they were able to uh, even this up. I didn't necessarily think they had it in them to win Game 2. And I don't know, with Houston, let me tell you something. I'm really glad that I picked the Warriors on SI.com. And every time I watch the Rockets, I think back in horror to the like 24 hours, really it was like 12 hours where I convinced myself that the Rockets, that picking the Rockets in the open floor bracket was a good idea and was a great way to, to ultimately like have the best chance at, at winning the bracket. I don't, I don't even know what I was thinking but I hate that I can't clown this Rockets team. I am not like their their offense, I you got to give credit to Utah, obviously. But I also just come back to the point I made about the Rockets, like I guess it was 2 weeks ago. I think that they put so much pressure on Harden to deliver in isolation that it just it, it's like a steep curve to try to exist on in the playoffs. And uh, there are going to be games where like the, the supporting cast doesn't really show up and Harden isn't good enough to make up for it because that's the way they play. They've decided to slow it down. And uh, I don't know, it leaves them a lot more vulnerable than I think anyone would have expected watching them win 65 games this year.
1: Yeah, and I guess my question is, have they figured that out yet? Like, are they legitimately scared, or are they going to kind of carry themselves like they did after Game 2, where it was like, oh, ho, ho, why are you guys even questioning us? Well, we're questioning you because we've seen, you know, five years worth of (laughs) postseason collapses, (laughs) and we're hoping it doesn't happen again. Like, we want to see you guys match up with Golden State and give us the sort of one versus two uh, showdown that everybody's been waiting for, but uh, yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, I think you're onto something with this isolation thing, because... You get into that tough environment in Utah, it's going to be loud, it's going to be crazy. Uh, The pressure, you know, the series is tighter. How many times can Harden go back to that shot? And if they're trying to take that away and they're trying to make him do other things, uh, how well will he adjust and and how much does it it, uh, bog down uh, like it did last year? I mean, that's something I'm absolutely watching. I think of all the series uh, where they're at right now, I think game three... Uh, Rockets Jazz is the most interesting because what happens if Harden comes out and just goes, you know, one for ten in the first quarter? Then what? You yeah. know, what I mean, uh, how do they respond? And and D'Antoni is already on record a thousand times saying like, we're not going to change what we do. You know, he's he's ready to go down with the ship how they've built it. So uh, we will see. Yeah,
0: I mean, it, and it's not totally a knock on Houston. I mean, obviously, I joke around, but like they're. Their model works. It's just if you're asking me to believe they're a contender, a real title contender, or it, like if, if they're trying to win at that level, they're asking a lot of James Harden. And I don't know if he is quite that good, um, but maybe he will be, or maybe one in, if if he comes out and shoots 1 in 10 then it's not a rockets problem it's be, it becomes a harden problem and uh and because that story is there too it, he hasn't been like disappearing but uh but i think we should all be on guard you're right we've all seen the last 5 years no, he, he,
1: no, he's had high highs and low lows i mean he's had 40 point games in this playoffs and he's certainly capable of doing that but the rockets problem and and the harden problem it's the same problem yeah. i mean that's how they've constructed this thing right i mean they're living and dying by him And, you know, it's we're getting to the point now where this is a real test, and and let's see how he responds.
0: So last question, Exum, what do you think?
1: No, I mean, it's, you know, I said two good quarters for Westbrook in a series. I mean, Exum's had one good game in four years, and we're supposed to throw him (laughs) a party.
0: Hold up, though. Hold up. I I believe Exum is still 21 years old. He might be 22 years old. The point is he's very young. And if he becomes a legitimate contributor for the Jazz or or more, I think that kind of alters their future. It's going to be an interesting summer with him. I, I don't know what he'll command on the open market. Uh, I, th- I believe he's a restricted free agent. So I don't know. I, the, the Jazz future has looked so much brighter over the last few weeks, even as it became clear that, like, Throughout the regular season it was like, okay, the the, see, the franchise didn't die when Gordon Hayward left, but now they are a legitimate player for the next five years. It's gonna be pretty interesting.
1: Well, what did you think about XM? I mean, I'm only half serious in, in kind of dismissing what he's done, but like I think we do need to look at the overall body of work. It's really easy to get excited. Guy has a big night, you know, I understand that yeah. and uh, physically, I mean, that was his profile, right? I mean, I don't know if you're going to call him a hardened stopper, but, like, that's what his number one NBA skill was supposed to be, on-ball defense, using his length and size to guard, you know, a one or a two, whoever the ball handler is, and to really get after it. And so it's good to see him do that, but, you know... <laughs> And there's been three or four years for him to do it. I mean, he was a top five pick, right? Well, yeah, he was... uh, We expect that kind of contribution. If he's, uh, you know, a quality seventh or eighth man, like, congratulations. You know, I don't think that's, like, the biggest home run in the world. He came
0: into the league looking like he was 15 years old and, like, 130 pounds. He, not surprisingly, had trouble staying healthy through those early years. I just think it's too early to conclude one way or the other what his, like... Prime is going to look like, um, and we weren't ever even talking about a Dante Exum Prime like seventy two hours ago, but it just mer- merits monitoring. I guess would be my would be my takeaway after that game. And uh, and he's had other moments. Okay, he's, every now and then, once every three months, Dante Exum has a game where everyone's like, "Oh my God, Dante Exum is back!" Uh, but we'll see.
1: Moving on so so all i've got to do in your eyes is be good once every three months and you're going to sing my praises Perfect. all right i need to get onto this i need to get onto this good list i feel like i'm always over here taking arrows from you look man you know i try look. to bring it every single night but if i just show up once every three months then you're going to give just me a, a
0: passing thought okay i was trying to answer that australian's question who knows who cares really uh we're going to save the coach discussion for next week because we've gone too long on all this other stuff. I want to end with two questions on, uh, first of all, Kawhi. Ben says, if you were the San Antonio Spurs, would you trade Kawhi for all of the Sixers draft picks or a bunch of Sixers assets what do you think about that? And what did you think about the Kawhi discussion this week in the wake of Ramona and Michael Wright's article for ESPN?
1: Oh, it was an excellent article. I mean, I think it all the information still left this thing kind of like completely up for grabs and sort of at the same place that we thought it was, which is he kind of wants that Supermax and San Antonio is kind of thinking about it and you know they're, they haven't offered it yet or it's not clear that they've reached the, the sides. And it seems like it's a very public negotiation. I mean, if I was San Antonio, I mean, first of all, six draft picks. Yeah, you're going to do that. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like Those kinds of trades, like the Ricky Williams trades don't happen in the NBA. I I, mean, I can't remember the last one that was like that. So I think you would have to seriously consider that. But uh, I think the the real question mark here for San Antonio, and I don't know how this is going to kind of hang over their offseason, whether it's Kawhi or otherwise, is this ownership like the family divorce, yeah. right? And that was just unquestioned for decades. You knew San Antonio where they stood in terms of ownership, and and now you're starting to hear, oh well, you know, uh, can Pop and RC kind of like sell the new owner or like the 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 ownership group, however you want to phrase it, on a two hundred plus million dollar contract for Kawhi after all of this, and like, you know, that was not. Uh, the way things were being framed, even like six months ago, right? So I think that that is sort of an unknowable, and I don't think people from the outside are ever going to be able to figure that out. Uh, if I was San Antonio, I'd be exploring Kawhi trades right now. Right? I mean, because y- you don't have total control of the situation, and all of the red flags that we were reading the tea leaves, you know, for months and months and months. I didn't think that story really cleared any of them up. Did you? No, I I,
0: I think it actually just sort of confirmed that all the suspicion was. Completely valid, and uh, we're going to have to wait and see basically whether Greg Popovich can sit down with Kawhi and solve this, and and who knows whether it's even possible for him to get in a one-on-one setting with Kawhi, because it sounds like things are just kind of crazy and strange, and nobody is really like communicating with each other right now, and so it's it's just tough to to read it it doesn't really seem like this is going to end well with with Kawhi and the Spurs the two conclusions that i thought were most interesting is first of all that article kind of underscored how pissed off Tony Parker and Manu were and and that divide i think is fascinating and i would love to know more this is another thing with the Spurs. We'll probably never find out exactly how that team meeting played out. But the fact that that happened, Tony Parker came out and publicly talked about how his injury was a hundred times worse or a thousand times worse. And then Kawhi just bounced and, and went to New York and never came back to San Antonio is like low-key crazy. Uh, and so... That was one thread that I found pretty interesting and then the other thing is, I guess to answer the question, first of all, if I were the Spurs, again, I would be calling the Lakers every day trying to steal Brandon Ingram in this deal and and I think Ingram is the one guy who's potentially available uh, if the if the Lakers are going superstar chasing who has real franchise player potential, the one guy that they could could get out of this, that tries to that, that allows them to sort of salvage things. Beyond that, though, in the article, I think it really is relevant that, that Jonathan Glasgow, the doctor who's been working with Kawhi, is also like a consultant for the Sixers who's worked with Embiid, and it's the type of like low-hanging fruit for fans on Twitter to sort of start to conspire and 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 connect the dots. But I think that coming into these trade talks one of the biggest wild cards is going to be Kawhi's health and and what the injury actually is and what the prognosis is from here. And it's going to give the Sixers a lot more security than other teams are going to have. And I think that may impact what Philly is willing to offer relative to the rest of the league.
1: Yeah, my, one other takeaway I have from this story was this. I tried to put myself into Kawhi's shoes, and admittedly, that's difficult. I mean, this guy won a finals MVP basically younger than anybody besides Magic. He wins a title very very early on. Mm-hmm. He gets a max contract, as his second deal. Everything's lined up for him to be the face of the franchise. He finishes number three in MVP voting. And I was asking myself, like, if I was in that situation and I just needed someone to manage my career, like, who would be the last people that I would... Select right, <laughs> and number one last person I decided I think it would be Rudy Giuliani. I just think, like, his performance this week, <laughs> he would be the number one person that I would not want to manage my career given the stakes involved and given all of my accomplishments. Number two would be my uncle, and <laughs> that would be very clear to me. And here's why we know how all these pieces get put together, Andrew. Like, you have to be connected, right? You, like, you're mentioning this MB thing. Well, look. Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and LeBron James theoretically could team up this summer, right? I mean, two out of those three, you could put some partnerships together, move the chess pieces. Who is Kawhi's chess manager, right? Like, he's at this point uh, of his career where it's either like, look, you can be the Supermax guy in San Antonio, or you can be like one of the most attractive co-stars in one of these team-up proposals that kind of dominate every summer, right? Do we have any confidence, number one, that he's angled himself with his representation to really be that 200 plus million dollar guy for San Antonio? It sure doesn't seem like it. It seems like if anything, they've kind of burned that bridge and have to put it back together. But then do we have any uh, evidence on the other side that he is now in position, you know, with his connections necessary to put together one of these super teams? I don't have any faith in that either, given how well he's kind of or how poorly he's really managed his uh, you know, public presentation and the kinds of people he's relying on uh, to, to handle his business form. So I think he's kind of getting it, uh, you know, short shrift both directions. And that's a huge red flag. And I guess if I'm San Antonio, that, that has me nervous. If I got some crazy trade off for like six, you know, draft picks, I'd say, fine. (laughs) go let somebody else deal with Kawhi. I'm good. Yeah.
0: He needs a rich Paul. You know, uh, man, not a rich climate, but Rich Paul. For the record, my uncle is a money manager who would be awesome representing my interests. He did my taxes through most of my 20s. Very responsible, level-headed individual. So I trust my uncle. Um, but uh, Are we doing advertisements <laughs> for your uncle's firm here? I thought it was Buffalo Wild Wings, Andrew. Uh, let me ask you this. Fultz Sarich, covington and number 11 or whatever the lakers pick ends up being do you do that deal if you're um san antonio
1: andrew i don't think you figured it out yet i'm on the team tony team manu side of that locker room <laughs> divide that you mentioned you could stop with
0: fultz and i'm doing that trade i'm <laughs> sick of it i'm over it <laughs> oh the monastery is fed up all right final question diego What are the chances that Paul George wants to come back, but Mello refusing a bench role and wanting that FU money is the reason he doesn't come back. So first of all, the chances that Paul George wants to come back to me are pretty slim. I don't think that Mello is going to tip the scales one way or another, because I don't really think that Mello is going to be in Oklahoma city next year, but I'm curious for your thoughts. And I, I will say this. I think Melo is going to be more tradable than he might seem right now because I think there are real benefits to taking, the, like, as the cap has, has sort of constricted over the last few years, money's tight all over the league. A one-year deal of 27 or $28 million expiring actually has a little bit of value, and Mello, it doesn't sound like he's going to want to stay in Oklahoma city and come off the bench like that. The whole relationship seems a little bit toxic right now. And that might be an opening for pressy to go to him and say, look, man, if you want to, if you want to go, we can arrange it. We can work something out. We just need you to waive this no trade clause.
1: You're sure Melo's not tipping any scales right now. <laughs> uh, <I> w- <laughs> come on, man. I would say, I know I'm just I'm just out here joking look I think your point is valid if you trade him uh, then that sets up a potential buyout too right so if a team is really looking to dump salary and save money uh, you know that could be a situation where like you know maybe it's a non-contender and uh, Melo gets his buyout and he sort of does what Dwayne Wade did with the Cavaliers right where you hop on and uh, you know you take that lower dollar deal because you've already gotten your money and and now you're along for a championship ride I mean I could see something like that playing out it's totally reasonable if I'm Paul George, like I, and it's hard to get inside of his head because he's, you know, loose lips, Paul, he's changed his story every single, (laughs) you know, 72 hours, but he definitely should not be making his decision based on Carmelo Anthony. He should be making his decision based on the partnership with Russell Westbrook. And does he really believe that that has a championship ceiling? And Sam Presti was trying to sell that very hard, you know, the value of continuity to Paul George to stick around and to build something. But, The counter argument is pretty obvious like how far are you going to be able to build that based on westbrook's track record for the last five years how much better could paul george really play consistently over the course of an 82 game season and an entire playoffs uh to get themselves on that contender level and i just don't see it i think he's going to have a better option whether it's philly uh, or somewhere else and i hope he would follow that as opposed to you know kind of talking himself into trying to make it work in oklahoma city
0: yeah Uh, I, I hope so too. I hope he goes to Philly. I think that would be a lot of fun. I think Paul George in LA could get a little dicey. Did you read the, the Royce Young piece that included the, the nugget about (laughs) Mello showing up early to the game? Basically he thought it was a 7 PM game and he showed up at like 4 PM whenever players typically, head to the arena and he got there found out it was an 8 p.m game nobody was in the locker room and instead of staying to like watch film or stretch or do whatever like nba stars are supposed to do before games Melo just turned around and left the arena which i find incredible
1: yeah, I know, and was, the same thing happened in reverse in Game th- uh, game 2 for Toronto. They had that early tip at 6 o'clock, and Ibaka didn't show up until like 8.30, so I don't know what <laughs> happened there. but
0: Man, <laughs> it's been a rough season for some, some of the veteran stars, uh, but that's a perfect place to end with the, some Raptors cruelty. It's been that kind of week for Toronto, um, and I would say I hope it gets better, but I really don't. <laughs> I hope that we get LeBron in the conference finals. But uh, this has been fun, Ben, and we will be back next Monday. We got to talk about Fizdale. We got to talk about uh, the Suns. A lot lot is in the air.
1: We have to talk about Steph Curry, too, because he had a masterful performance in his first game back. 28 points, light worked. It looked awesome. It's so nice to have him back on the court. I'm sure we'll get into that next week. We're going to have plenty of time to talk Warriors, One thing
0: on Steph, you have to give him credit, Okay. Since Steph Curry came back on Tuesday night, the Raptors are the Raptors again. LeBron James is dominating. The Rockets have reverted to form in the playoffs and had a meltdown on cue against the, uh, the, the Jazz. We'll probably lose Game 3. And the Sixers are the Sixers again. So order has been restored throughout the NBA universe now that Steph Curry is back. I wish that Warriors games were a little bit more exciting because as as long as he's out there and granted the Pelicans made it interesting, but as long as Steph is there, I just kind of can't imagine them losing, but he has made the rest of the league more fun.
1: Yeah. It was sort of like a snow globe was tipped over and he came along and just sort of like (laughs) set it the right direction back up and just started draining threes just like the old days. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, Andrew, our listeners can email us at openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com for all their questions, comments, concerns, and angry emails. I'm sure we we piss the people off with this podcast. Look, it's late night. Sometimes that happens. We get a little punchy. Uh, also, go to Apple Podcasts, search Open Floor, scroll down. Uh, once you get onto our page, it will say rate and review, tap five stars. We really appreciate it. Those kinds of ratings and reviews really help us uh, you know, spread the Open Floor love uh, around the globe. Andrew, until next
0: week, I'll talk all right, to man. you. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts locked on your favorite team it's the locked on podcast network your team every day